and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit more about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about what the world or the corporate world calls soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication, which we're going to talk about in today's conversation, as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. One of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased the book, and I've been overwhelmed by the response it has gotten so far. Additionally, I run an accelerator program, which involves one-on-one coaching and group elements. So we have a monthly Zoom call, we have a retreat, we have a LinkedIn group, and we're constantly helping people connect with themselves, connect with each other, and figure out how they can learn, grow, and develop so they can lead and perform better. Our next accelerator launches in January and is filling up now. If you're interested in one-on-one coaching, the accelerator is really where we do a lot of one-on-one coaching and we create an amazing community. There's over 50 people that are actually part of the community currently. So thanks to all of you who have signed up. And if you're interested, feel free to reach out. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who have already done so. Let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Quinn Snyder has been on a coaching journey for a while now, but it didn't start out that way. He was a McDonald's All-American coming out of high school and went to play basketball at Duke, where he went to three Final Fours as a player. Upon graduation, he thought about pursuing a professional career playing basketball and instead decided to pursue a law degree, so he pursued getting a JD and an MBA. 
And while he was doing that, he fell back in love with the game. He fell back in love with basketball. So this conversation is going to be about his journey to falling back in love and enjoying the game of basketball. And more importantly, enjoying coaching. And that word joy is just riddled throughout our conversation today. And Quinn had to rediscover his joy of coaching. At the age of 32, he was the head coach of University of Missouri. It looked like he was the next bright star in coaching. And then that came crumbling down and he actually got fired from that position. He then found himself coaching in the D-League with the Austin Toros, who were part of the San Antonio Spurs organization. And at that time, the D-League was very different than what it is today. And he really had to start from the ground up and rebuild his reputation as a coach. So he did that. He actually went to Russia to coach, which we don't even get into in this conversation. But he bounced around quite a bit and learned a ton along the way. And really, it was with those humble restart and that humble beginning of sort or rebirth of sort where he really fell back in love with the game and fell back in love with coaching. Today, he's the head coach of the Utah Jazz, who are a perennial playoff team. They're one of the best teams in the world. And he has really built an incredible culture and an incredible core of young players who continue to compete selflessly in the way that they play the game. So Quinn is a thoughtful guy, he's a philosophical guy, and he's someone who thinks deeply about how to develop not just players, but people. So he's honest in this conversation, and he's a typically a pretty private guy. So we got him to open up a bit in our dialogue today. So I know you're going to love it. Without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Quinn Snyder. Coach, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Danny Ferry connected us and... I think we're both fond of Danny and you go way back with Danny. I go a little back with Danny. I wouldn't say way back. You go a little back with Danny as well. Um, and Danny, when I started my sports psychology career said, Hey, Brian, you got to read this book. Uh, what is it? Thinking body, dancing mind. I always think body I'm going to get, get it wrong. And I know Dr. Jerry Lynch had a big impact on his playing career. And also when he got into front office and into leadership roles in organizations. Can you talk about Dr. Jerry and the impact that he's had on you as a coach and some of the lessons you've learned along the way? Well, you know, similar to you, I, I met Jerry um, through Danny and, you know, way back um, when I was coaching at Duke and, you know, always felt that you know, a, a player or, you know, really all of us, um, particularly someone that's in a competitive environment, uh, your ability to, to stay locked in, um, in, in the present is something that, that uh, was essential to performing at a high level. And a lot of the things that, that we talked about, that is, you know, Dr. Lynch and I, uh, Dr. Jerry, he's got a number of names we go by, we use them for him. Um, all complimentary too. Uh, the conversations that I had with him from the outset, you know, really resonated with me. And, and as much as anything, you know, knowing Danny the way that I did and, you know, knowing how important, um, you know, his, his performance was to him and, and also understanding that sometimes, you know, that level of um, focus and, and, you know, intensity that you place into something like that can at times even be inhibiting because you can literally care too much about, I think, a result or, or an outcome which can take you out of the present. So 
it, it, in hindsight, it really resonated with me as far as something that when I was playing that, that would have been beneficial to me um, because that was something I, I did struggle with. And I felt like it, it made the game less fun. And if there's something um, that I kind of every time, you know, Jerry's name comes up that, that, that I'm remembered and, and am reminded of, uh, it's that this is supposed to be fun. You're supposed to enjoy what you're doing. Um, we're lucky to have an opportunity to compete as players, as coaches, you know, in whatever venue that is, whether it's business or athletics. And that was something that, you know, even his, his countenance, you know, the, the, his tone of voice, his inflection um, just kind of spoke to me that, you know, this is, this is supposed to be a joyful experience. And oftentimes that gets lost in, you know, in a lot of different ways. And to be honest with you, as a coach, it was one of the things that really pulled me into coaching because I felt like to the extent that, um, I was capable of impacting, you know, the players that were playing for me way back, even when I was an assistant at Duke, whether that was, you know, Shane Battier or Steve Wojciechowski or, um, you know, Elton Brand, William Avery, the, the list goes on. And um, Jerry had an opportunity to do some things with our team there at Duke. And then um, additionally, when I got to Missouri, we, you know, entered into a kind of a more regular formal relationship um, that, that as much as, you know, as much as it was good for our players, I think it was helpful to me personally to be reminded of those things. And it's something that kind of ebbs and flows and I catch myself and, you know, in the last year or two, um, I've had a chance to reconnect with Jerry, um, even more. He's written a few more books since thinking body dancing mine. I'm not going to say I'm on the air and give him the free promotional, uh, <laughs> bump because I don't, I don't want to do that to him. He's probably selling too many already. Things will go over the roof and he won't be able to satisfy demand. So not, not from um, this podcast, but your, your dad was, your dad was a baseball coach. And uh, did you witness him coaching with joy? Was joy a part of the way he coached or was it a different approach? No, I think the thing that, that I remember most about, you know, his coaching and I was, I was pretty young. Um, he ended up, uh, retiring at, at a young age. Um, he was a baseball coach and um, won state championship and, you know, was in the Washington State Hall of Fame, um, even though he, he, he put it down, so to speak. Um, and he did that to spend more time, you know, with our family. Um, because I think, like myself and, and many of us, um, you know, coaching can be something that's consuming. And, um, your ability to find balance um, in many professions is a challenge. Um, and I, I think, you know, when I, what I remember, I remember him sitting at his desk with, you know, an eight by 11 or actually a longer legal pad on one of those old kind of cardboard brown clipboards playing in practice. And he's since passed away. Um, but it was, it was really fun. And looking back, uh, some of the practice plans even that, that he had for his team, they were so detailed. And one of the things that really stood out was he had something for every player on the team. So you had a general practice plan, you know, from 320 to 340, you're going to do this and so on and so forth. And, um, and then there was these boxes that were specific to players and, you know, they weren't always filled. 
Um, but the fact that he was thinking about each player on his team uh, on a granular level, on a personal level, and the things that showed up in those boxes weren't always just baseball. You know, they were things that um, they were impacting, you know, someone's life outside of baseball. And it, it always struck me that, you know, that's not the type of thing typically that we see on a practice plan. Um, but the, the understanding, even for a high school coach, um, how much that meant. And the thing that, you know, that I remember more than anything is he used to talk about having a servant's heart and, you know, approaching uh, coaching from that standpoint, you know, that you could be there to serve your players. Uh, I think that's something that players feel. And ultimately that gives you the opportunity to build trust with them um, because they know that you, you do care. Um, you care more than just whether they, you know, make a, make a shot or get a hit, um, whatever the case is. And that obviously, you know, ironically, I should say, I think allows you the opportunity to say things that, that don't feel, um, you know, that, that are critical um, or, you know, at what point do we call something coaching or call it criticism? We, we refer to it as constructive criticism. Um, but those things were all tied together for me. And I think maybe, not necessarily at a young age consciously recognizing that, but even going back and saying, boy, this makes a lot of sense. He was onto something. So where does the joy come from? Mom, mom was an artist. It seems like mom was interested in music. And was she someone that cared deeply about joy or was joy something that you had to figure out later in your life? It, it, it's definitely something that has been a, a constant uh, evolution or a process kind of um, reminding yourself that that's really, I think, you know, when you're at your best as a coach, that you're coming from that place. I think it's true of everyone in competition. Um, yeah, my, my mom was a really talented lady. And um, whether, you know, I remember my dad built this, I don't know what, what you'd call it other than like a shed. She started sculpting and she had a couple of pottery wheels out there. And, um, you know, there was a lot of music. In, in our home growing up, I was the one that it skipped me, all that musical ability. My younger brother, Matt, um, you know, is able to entertain us on, on many occasions playing guitar. And um, so I get to touch it that way. But I, I, when, when I would have game, you know, I, I remember specifically, you know, in college that um, there were times, I mean, she knew if we won, she never knew the score. Um, but she used to talk about, you know, the way that players like moved, which always struck me as kind of, you know, he was graceful or, um, the way that she saw athletics was through the eyes of an artist. You know, I think she saw in a basketball game, she saw dance and, you know, I couldn't quite get my arms around that. <laughs> like mom, they, there's a lot more going on there. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, my movements look fluid, but that's, you know, I, I just got the ball stolen from me too. So, um, but that was, that was her. And, you know, it, it, uh, when I was, you know, going through tough times, whether it be as a player, you know, I remember, you know, more often, you know, coaching when you would really internalize wins and losses on a level that, that you do as a leader or you're, you're even, you feel even more responsible every game for 
the outcome that that was something that used to ground me um, when I when I talked to him that, that to not allow you know a win or a loss to define you as a human being and she didn't look at life that way she didn't look at you know my you know career that way whether it be playing or coaching and that was something that you know that was a gift it's interesting i've worked with coaches before who played at a high level and they used to say to me uh there's one in particular that i'm thinking about that coached professionally and i worked with him and his team and he's, I say, coach, go have fun tonight. Like, go, go have joy. And he'd look at me. He's like, this is not joy. Like playing when I used to go out there and play, it was joyful, but the coaching, no, I'm just trying to get through this thing. <laughs> and then after maybe we'll have a beer and have some joy. Um, for you, when you first started your career, you started, you know, early, you went and got your JD MBA and then you made a decision instead of going the business route to go coach and you had the opportunity to coach at Duke and then at 32 years old, you're coaching, you're a head coach of a, a big program like Missouri. Those first years as you're coaching and, and you're the head coach in your thirties, did you have that perspective then, or was it an obsession and sort of everything you're living and dying with the wins and the losses? And I know obviously you still care deeply about the wins and losses you're in professional basketball, but uh, those years in your thirties, what did you do to try to ground yourself and, and have perspective then, or, or did you not? And is that something that you had to learn later in your career? No, I, I think it was cyclical for me. Um, and, and one of the reasons, as I mentioned before, a little bit alluded to at least is that I got into coaching um, because I was, you know, I was in grad school and you know, I was able to secure a job my, my last year um, when I finished up and had a job that was, you know, was coveted in many respects by the people I was going to school with. And, you know, that, that felt good. That felt like an achievement in and of itself. And hey, Quinn, what was, to, what was, what was the job? I was, I, I, so I did a year of law school and then I deferred for a year and came back Um well, I did a year of law school, a year of business school. Um, I didn't think I would be a very good attorney, so I decided to go to business school too. I was really graduate school for me, and it sounds a little crazy, but um, I had been feeling really like I was working as an undergrad because I was playing basketball. And, you know, not that I didn't care about how I did in class. There'd be, you know, usually a professor would grab my attention. You know, the guy, Rick Roderick, taught 19th century philosophy. And I didn't know a whole lot about philosophy, but I really enjoyed him and respected him and ended up, you know, pursuing a major in philosophy as well. So I, I had a, a good experience academically, but it was always, you know, basketball was the, the undercurrent to everything. So going to graduate school for me was really an exploratory opportunity. Um and I, I really enjoyed law school. I, I liked the, the kind of the intellectual component. Um, you know, I, I, strangely enough, the same thing. You know, I had a great teacher, a guy named Richard Schmalbeck, who um, I taught. He taught tax. And so I, I, I never knew the tax code could be so interesting. But I ended up taking another class from him, tax-exempt institution. So I guess there's a pattern there for me where a teacher or a coach or professor you know, had an impact on me and I'm getting off topic a little bit from your question, but um, that was something that I really enjoyed in graduate school. 
when I got to the summertime and I was going to go be an intern in a law firm, um, that, that didn't connect with me as much. And usually if something, you know, doesn't grab you like that, you're probably not going to be able to embrace it on the level that, that maybe, um, you could otherwise. And, and as a result, you know, maybe not, you know, if you're not that deep into it and focused, you're probably not going to be as successful. So I could figure that out. So that took me to business school. And then when I came back, um, I deferred for a year and went out and coached with the Clippers. Um, and then when I came back, finished up school and there was a, there was a gentleman by the name of John Mack who, um, you know, ultimately was the CEO of Morgan Stanley. And he and I become close um, a number of years previous. And I had an opportunity to go work in corporate finance. Um, I kind of bounced around there too, whether I wanted to get into sales and trading. There were some people that, that I worked for in the summer on, on the trading floor, a guy named Mike Rankowitz, who ran the high yield desk at Morgan Stanley, um, who's still, you know, a close friend. Um, and Mr. Mack also, John, um, is still a really close friend. And I can remember going into his office and, you know, talking about whether or not this was something um, that made sense and, and asking him, you know, more as a, as a friend and a mentor, you know, what, what do you think? And um, I didn't have any of that figured out. And so getting into coaching um, was something that evolved for me. Um, I let go of basketball in part because I, I wasn't enjoying it, to be honest with you, as a player. My, my senior year, I was, you know, team captain and, and all those things. And, you know, Danny was terrific. He was my roommate and, you know, he carried us, but I did a little bit and we were ranked number one in the country, played in the final four. And in spite of all that success, um, I wanted to do something else. It was just time for a change. And hey, hey that, Quinn, can you just, how do you think about success and how do you think about failure? Because there you are, you're playing for the number one team in the country. It, it, it would seem like that would be success. Why was that not success for you? And then I'm also curious about how you think about failure in the same light. Yeah, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that it wasn't success. Um, it was a question, it gets back to, to, to the joy comment, I guess. And um, in this case, um, I, I wasn't inclined to keep working through that. Um, that for me, I remember telling my dad that, you know, I was going to stop playing basketball. And I had been to the Pacers training camp and I was looking at the ceiling about midnight and said, you know, this is just isn't something I want to keep doing. And I, I, I wanted to know that I was quitting and for the right reasons that I, that, that it wasn't something um, to your point that, that I didn't want to do anymore because it was connected to some fear of failure as much as it is, it was just time for a change. So that was what really precipitated that change. And I think because I stopped playing then, um, you know, arguably prematurely, um, I could have kept playing at whatever level um, it, it it left me in a place where I ultimately came back to that to coach um, because of my own experience. And, you know, we can keep talking about joy, 
that I just, it didn't grab me anymore. It wasn't something that, that I wanted to embrace, but circling back coaching, you know, stuck out as a way that, that I could still experience some of the, you know, the, the great things that come with being a part of a team and impact that team's success through the players in, in ways that at times I wasn't able to, to find as a player. So um, that dances around it a little bit, but as far as success and failure goes, I mean, to me, at that point in graduate school, success was just finding something I enjoyed to do, enjoyed doing. And, you know, that, that's what got me into coaching. It, it, I kind of backed into it to be honest with you, it wasn't something when I started graduate school that I thought, Hey, this is going to be my path. I stayed involved because I was in town. I was in Durham and, you know, Cameron was right over the hill. So I was a grad assistant, but you know, I really didn't have an intent to coach until my last year. And I was comparing that to, you know, some other opportunities professionally. What do you think you get from coaching that you wouldn't have gotten if you were a trader at Morgan Stanley? You know, I, I wouldn't, I'm not sure that, that there's anything that I get that you wouldn't get there. I think there's plenty of people, um, even in the short time that I spent there, you know, that collection of guys that are on the trading floor, you know, working together, that's a team. And so I think there's, there, there's, you know, hundreds of teams out there, you know, you, you, you can be connected to a team. It's such an obvious thing you know, when you're a coach that you're leading a team and, um, and we characterize it that way, you know, all the time. But I, I think there's plenty of organizations that do call those groups teams and there's others that, you know, there's informal teams, but that was the part of it to me that um, Coach K used to talk about, you know, playing an individual sport and the beauty of basketball or anything, you know, the, the, a team sport was that you had an opportunity to share the experience with the other people on the team. And that was something, you know, anybody that's been a part of a team. And in this case, when the stakes are high, you know, those things are accentuated, you know, the lows and the highs. And, you know, you hear about the foxhole as an example, that's, you know, being on a team in a foxhole is a whole lot more intense than being on a team in the playoffs. Um, but we use that metaphor all the time because I think guys, they identify with that. They know what that feels like to have someone, you know, call you a failure or to criticize you publicly and all those things that, you know, that are part of this path that, that we've chosen as coaches and players. You mentioned Coach K and like Danny, you spent time at Duke. You, you, you spent time together. And then you also got to spend time with the Spurs organization when you coached in the D League then, now the G League. Um, can you talk about both of those programs? And I use the word program because I know the Spurs use the word program. Duke uses the word program. Um, talk about any similarities, any differences, and what it was like to be part of them. Because when I think of the NBA and I think of the best organizations, the Spurs are the one that comes to mind. And when I think of college basketball, much to a lot of my friends who grew up in Maryland, um, <laughs> much that they would disagree with this, but I think it's a pretty obvious thing that Duke basketball today, it, it was becoming that as you were part of it, but today is, is the gold standard in college basketball. So talk about those programs and any similarities or any differences as well. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is the leadership. You know, I think you have in Coach K and Pop and, 
you know, the results would make that very easy to recognize. But um, even, you know, in spite of that or beyond that, I think you have two coaches, you know, leaders that, you know, have very, very clear and strong values that they are able to apply to their day to day. And, you know, those those values and those beliefs, um, you know, impact decision making on a daily level. Um, you see it sometimes in the largest things, but behind the scenes, there are all the small things that um, you'll either tolerate, um, you won't, um, you know, you'll set certain goals. Sometimes they're not even spoken. They're just, you know, part of your life. Um, and I think that integration between your personal life and your professional life and, you know, how that team represents what you believe in, um, there's a consistency there between those two programs. And um, that's what creates culture. You know, it's not the thing, what you put on the wall, although sometimes what you put on the wall kind of references it, but there isn't a sign you're going to put up that's going to build a culture. You know, a culture is built. Um, you know, by a commitment, you know, we obviously all compromise in, in many ways, but there are certain things you won't compromise. Um, so I think that's the thin red line that runs through those two programs. And it starts with the, you know, the people that are leading um, in the case of Duke, obviously coach K and, and with the Spurs pop. And when, when I got to Austin to coach the D league team, you know, I was, I was back, you know, where I was when I was 30 at 40, trying to figure out what it was I wanted to do next. And I, I was pretty certain at that point, you know, I'd have a, had some, you know, some, some trauma, frankly, at, at Missouri, um, particularly towards the end and how it impacted me personally. And I went from being, you know, cringing when people would call me a golden boy, just going like, what is that? And knowing what was coming next is that as you were built up, you would be torn down. And I certainly helped that, that teardown process in a number of ways, but a lot of it too wasn't indicative of, of who I was. And at least my own perception of myself in spite of whatever, you know, failures that, that you own and try to learn from. And I just didn't know if I wanted to deal with that anymore. You know, it just, it, it again, to go back to your joy. It wasn't something um, that was healthy. And so really I, I found myself, you know, in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I talked to RC Buford quite a bit and the job for the Dealey came open in Austin and suddenly I had zero expectations. I just wanted to see if this was something I enjoyed doing again and or I could find, you know, some sap satisfaction or happiness. And that three years I spent in Austin were three of the best years um, of my life, certainly my, my coaching life. And a lot of it was because it was really reduced um, to teaching and coaching and motivating and learning and all those things. Um, you know, you couldn't find our score in the paper. You know, I knew what it was. It still mattered, but it didn't matter that, that no one else knew what we were doing. What mattered was Squeaky Johnson and Justin Bone and all the different guys that, that came through there and played. And um, we had a saying uh, that I think was representative of, of that time for me. And we, I'd tell the players, like, look, I, 
you know, none of you guys want to be playing for me because you want to be in the NBA. You want to be, this is a means to an end. And in many respects, the minor leagues, that's what they call it, the minor leagues. Well, that has a negative connotation. And so the, the idea was, hey, in order to get out of here, you've got to be here. And you want out of here, you know, then just be here. And I think I lived that, you know, we practiced at Zaragoza Rec Center. And it was fun, you know, and I think that's the environment that we created. And I benefited from it as, as much as the players. It was just a great experience. And then I had the opportunity to also go to San Antonio and experience, you know, what was going on there. So I really, if there was a fertile ground for learning and, and development for me, um, you know, the Bolden Creek coffee shop had a role in that too. It, you know, just everything kind of lined up. Um, where I was really happy doing what I was doing. And I didn't have, you know, there wasn't an ambition that, that I was trying to get out of there. And for me, it was, I didn't really want to get out of there, you know? So it was easier for me to say that to the players <laughs> than, than it was for them to accept it and do it. But um, that was a pivotal time in my life. It's interesting because you're talking about like the love of coaching and, and, and just focusing on the coaching and not all the other stuff that maybe comes with it. But there's something that I'm curious to get your thoughts on. You said your dad retired early from, from coaching uh, coach K who we just mentioned retired, not necessarily early, but, or is going to retire in this, this next year. Um, Roy Williams, uh, Muffet McGraw, who we've had on the podcast. Uh, she decided to retire. I've had on other coaches that have retired in their thirties. Uh, Jessica Kern was a division one women's basketball coach and Adele Harris, was a division one women's basketball coach. And, and so here you are now, you're not 30, you're not 40. Um, we don't need to talk about age, but yeah, I'm 50. <laughs> there you are, right. So, so here we are and going through a pandemic. I think a lot of us have been reflecting about what we're we doing with our life. How are we doing it? For a lot of coaches that I talk to, sports coaches, it's the first time where they are spending a little more time at home. They were grounded for some of the pandemic. They were um, not necessarily running around as much. Um, for you, as you think about these last this last year and a half, two years, um, how do you think about balance, which is a word that you used earlier? And your job typically isn't too conducive. Brad Stevens, another person, went from head coaching to the front office. So how do you think about balance and, and home life uh, as you also think about coaching an NBA team, which is an amazing opportunity and there's a limited amount of them, but it also comes with maybe some of the challenges that those 50-year-olds that been on the trading floor at Wall Street at 50, maybe they're starting to think about... <laughs> doing something different. And I've worked with those people too. Like a lot of them have adjusted or pivoted or are working from home. Things have changed quite a bit the last year and a half. So talk about your experience and, and what it's been like for you. I, I think, you know, all those perceptions and, you know, the feelings and beliefs that, that drive those decisions are on some level philosophical ones, you know, it, it the, to the extent that any profession, you know, just speaking from experience with this one, um, has the capability to define you. If you allow yourself, you know, to be defined in those ways to define success, you know, in whatever way that it is externally or, um, you know, amongst your peers or particularly, you know, in the media, particularly with what, you know, what we see now and, 
um, you know, everybody that's got the ability to, you know, to assess you, um, that assessment of your professional life can become very personal. Um, I try not to, you know, I try to insulate myself from that as much as possible, um, only because I think it's distracting. Um, for me, you know, it's a pretty good barometer if I haven't read a book in a while that I'm probably being, you know, consumed. And sometimes that's just pragmatic. You're, you're busy and you want to do the job at a level. Um, you're paid to do it for one. Um, and it just, you know, we want, we, we want to do our best. And what that means sometimes is a tremendous amount of time spent and also emotional energy that, that contributes to that. And, you know, we, ju we just have a limited amount of time and a limited amount of, you know, of passion that you can devote to something. And there's an opportunity cost. And I, I think, you know, that opportunity cost, you know, is something you're aware of, but oftentimes gets suppressed. And um, there's all kinds of things that, that make it harder. Um, I think the financial component, you know, whether it's Wall Street or coaching, there's, you know, it's, it's we're fortunate to, you know, to have opportunities that, you know, are lucrative, um, particularly on a relative basis. I mean, I never thought that I'd be able to, you know, to realize that, you know, the, what exactly the I want to say something other than it's more than just um, financial success as much as it is kind of this professional platform that we get put on and uh, I won't I'd like to think it's not something that's intoxicating um, but to the extent you know whether it's fame or money or all the things that when you step back philosophically I think we all can agree um, those aren't ends in themselves. Um, I don't think those are things that really drive happiness. Um, but they're also things that are very difficult to let go of. Um, so you get caught on this, this treadmill, you know, so to speak. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's something that I'm aware of. Um, and particularly, I, I think because I got fired, um, that that's a that's a something I can rely on. It's it's hell. I know if I get fired or if I quit, I'm gonna be okay. And I know that there's, you know, there's something on the other side of that that curtain. And I've I've kind of promised myself and my family if it if it gets to a point where, you know, this job is is dominating, you know, my life and in turn my family's life you know, on a level that I don't think is healthy, that I'll walk away. And I know I'm not afraid to do that. You know, it's just in some respects, you know, making that decision can be liberating because you're essentially grabbing hold of other values that, um, that you believe in. And sometimes that may seem extreme, um, but there's myriad reasons that you don't do it, that you won't do it. And I named some of them, but, you know, I, I think it goes back to, you know, again, how you define yourself, you know, and what, you know, what you want to look back on and, and less about having a legacy as much as about, you know, being able to cultivate and, and have relationships in your life that provide it, you know, provide it meaning. And the hard thing about coaching is you get those, you know, you get those from your players, you get those particularly from your staff, um, but you don't have a lot of friends. 
You know, I mean, it, it's it's a lonely job in many respects. Um, and so I, I think for me, my focus continues, you know, it turns to your family um, because that to me is kind of the embodiment of that. The word that you, when you were saying the platform, the word that was coming up for me was influence. And there's great influence that you can have in the seat that you're in, um, both internally and externally in your community. Uh, And even when we saw what was going on racially in this country, you were quick to speak out about that and use, use some of your influence. So I think that word influence is usually tied to leadership. Um, And I think sometimes we think that leadership is positive or negative. Like I think it's, it's influence and we have good leaders and we have bad leaders, but they're going to influence. And then I think about that word influence and I think about social media and the fact that we have influencers who actually get paid to advertise certain things. And we think about this social media world that we live in now where someone with a big following, which a leader needs followers um, and the influence that they can have both positive or negative you mentioned values, and I know that a lot of the culture in Utah, you mentioned Duke and San Antonio and the leadership with Pop and Coach K. Well, here you are now influencing the culture in Utah and words like selflessness, competition, joy, which we've talked about, connectedness, perseverance. I'd love to hear you talk about those values or those words and how you cultivate that at, at your program. It's a lot. Um, I, I think, well, to, to, to your point about influence, um, I think that with that comes a, a tremendous responsibility. Um, and one, uh, what are you influencing? Who are you influencing? And in what way are, are you influencing something? And that, you know, that, that I think requires a lot of introspection and in, in trying to come to um, trying to understand what, what it is you do believe in. And um, oftentimes, again, you, you can get siloed where um, it requires you putting attention on various things to understand them in order to have, you know, what are educated opinions. And the other, the hard thing about that, I don't think there's a lot of room right now, society for, for, for the evolution of opinions. That there's something that you may believe at a certain point that you don't necessarily understand or you haven't experienced. And then as you learn or do experience, um, you know, your views may evolve. And that process, I think, you know, requires attention and time and investment to, to understand whether it be, you know, political issues, socioeconomic issues, you know, anything. This is a complicated world we live in. And, you know, as a, I, I hesitate at some point um, to think that because I'm a basketball coach and I have the ability to influence that I can do that in a way that's productive or healthy. I mean, I, I think there's just as much of a likelihood that um, someone's quote unquote following you in, in some way for something that you haven't thought through. Um, so I'm, I've become really private um, with my life in, in that regard, because I think, um, you know, th- there's just the, rarely do we get deeper than the surface in a lot of those things. So um, I'm not on social media, to be honest with you. I, I, I don't want to be defined that way. Um, and I don't want um, to the extent that, you know, I allow that to happen 
um, that I have a responsibility on myself. I say that, well, how, how do you want to be defined? And that to me is ongoing. I don't have an answer to that. Um, but I'd rather not put my focus there. You know, I know that, you know, we can get off track on social media. Um, you know, obviously, I'm not being judgmental of social media. I think everybody has their, you know, their own views on that, their own experience. And, you know, we have a lot of guys on our team that are really active in it. And there's such great opportunity for them, as you said, to use that in a positive way. Um, it's terrific. Um, but as far as who I'm influencing, I know the people that I'm around every day. Those are the people that I have an opportunity to influence maybe on a deeper level. Um, and that's important to me. So um, I have to be mindful of that and things that, that I want to live or share or believe that they're thought through. And um, that's, a, that's a process and one that I, I think is something that I um, take seriously. Um, but I, I, I do know that the people that I want to influence the most are the people that are closest to me. And that kind of spells um, a more private life. I, I know my kids are defined in some way by what I do. You know, they go to school and someone says, your dad stinks. You guys lost. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. And um, that's, that's a reality. But I'd like for them, even though they're young, to look beyond that and understand that, you know, someone that has an opinion about you doesn't necessarily know you. Um, and you can, you can get caught fighting windmills with that, trying to influence, you know, how people see you. And, you know, to the extent, again, that, you know, you're, if you're going to de derive your, you know, your integrity or your self-worth from, from an external source, it's, it's going to be too high and it's going to be too low. And uh, I've been through that. And I don't, I don't want to put myself in that position again. If I find myself in that position again, I will walk away. Um, if I'm not capable of balancing that and I begin to feel like it's impacting me in a way that's not healthy, you know, that's a, that's a tipping point for me. That's a no compromise. It's interesting you mentioned your kids because my dad was successful in his industry and a lot of people in my community know my dad. So I'll, I'll meet them and they'll say, Oh, you're Bruce's son. And in the beginning it's like, what do you do with that? Yeah. And then they'll say, Oh, I love your dad. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I love him too. Like, cool. But what I've come to realize and appreciate is that, and I think back on my childhood, it was not focused on greatness as much as it was focused on goodness. And what I mean by that is like, I was just at dinner with my dad the other day and we were actually, I, before we recorded, I mentioned to you a story where, where you impacted him, but um, you know, my childhood wasn't, you have to be great at something. It was just treat people the right way. Um, you know, act with a certain amount of character and integrity and I think at the end of the day, that's the best that you can do. You're going to figure out what lane you want to be great in and, and go do that. But I think a lot of parents put that on their kids and say, you have to be great at something and then go toward it as opposed to just like do do the things that we were taught in our religious texts, do the things that were taught that are very basic to be kind, to treat people the right way. Um, so just for you to know your kids, like you, you teach them those qualities, they'll, they'll at least be like me, which I guess will be okay. Um, <laughs> I, I want to just go back to culture for a minute and then we'll wind down here. Cause I know you got to run, um, culture, as far as you think about the jazz culture, how do you think about what you're building there? What you've already built? Look, you guys have built something really special. There's also a history in Utah of a special culture. Um, 
but talk about what you want it to look like. You said it's not always the things that are up on the wall, but like, what is it that you want to feel when you walk in to a Utah Jazz practice facility or when a team, when somebody watches your team play uh, on game day? Well, you know, cultures, I think we all generally kind of know what we're talking about when we say culture. Um, I mentioned the, the, the writing on the wall. Um, one of the most famous um, examples that kind of think is in the metaphor or embodiment of a culture is, is in San Antonio when we talk about pounding the rock. And, um, that, that's something that I think that organization and those teams and, and Pop and all those guys that were a part of that, they lived that. And then that came to represent how they were living. Um, to me, you know, when I got here, we took all the signs off the wall. I just, I didn't feel that we had defined ourselves in a way that any, you know, saying or sign. Now we talk about persistence, we talk about perseverance, but that becomes real when you have to persevere. You know, that's when those things become real, when they, when you have to live them. And to the extent you can feel like you are something, really what you, what you are is what you do. And that's why I mentioned all the, you know, the small decisions you can talk about, you know, hard work. Well, when you get in practice, do you work, you know, and, or do you prepare, you know, all those things that we want to, to kind of grab and make ours and put up a sign and, you know, this is who I am. I think um, sometimes that's fine. Sometimes it does, you know, it is indicative of who you are, but, you know, we've just tried to, to live something. And, and to your point, I think the greatest compliment, you know, that, that I've had or you can have as a coach is when your team demonstrates something in competition that you value. And really that to me, as much as anything, you know, about this job, you know, that, that is, can basketball be a metaphor for how you live? Can you play a certain way that is the way that you want to live? That it demonstrates things you value. So making an extra pass um, is an example of unselfishness. You know, we went through a period a few years back where we were nine games under 500 and had no chance. And Rudy Gobert thought we could make the playoffs. I didn't. You know, so he he lived that more than I did. You know, I could get up in front of the media and say, we're not out of it yet. We're not. I don't know that I really believe that. And it wasn't a sign that I was going to put on the wall. And I learned that and I got that from Rudy. And that's part of being on a team that, that can be really special is that. And there's an example of influence right there on a really fundamental level. So um, I, I think that, you know, when when you can live something day to day, you know, that that culture is organic, you know, and you're laying that foundation. Um, and then when you take that into competition where, you know, there's very immediate, um, you know, challenges to you living that. And you're not always going to be successful either. I mean, I think that's important that um, we generally hold up and, and see, you know, successful cultures. And, and I think it's, it's counterintuitive, but that success probably is a result of a lot of those things that a team is doing. Now you have to be talented too, that helps, <laughs> but um, you know, that that's an, an equalizer. But when two teams are talented, I think a team that 
you know, is a team, when that whole can be greater than the sum of the parts, you know, that's where we find value. And really as coaches, that's where, you know, hopefully you can impact. Last question. And then we'll wind down. Is there a mission statement or something that guides you or a coaching philosophy that, that helps guide you day to day through the ups and downs of an 82 game season and the playoffs and summer league and free agency and trades and, and this sort of 24 seven job that, that coaching typically is. Yeah, I, I think it, it's really kind of reduces what we're talking about. When I when I was, I tried to go through that exercise just with that kind of question in mind. If this, if basketball is going to be, if I'm going to do this, how can I do it in a way that's going to, you know, make me a better human being, make my contribution, you know, a more kind of pure one, for lack of a better word. It's a little bit like when you're talking about your dad you know being good or being great if you can be good you know I think you have an opportunity to be great and so I had four things that that I had written down um, that I had taken from a number of different things that I had read or resonated with me and you know tried to to live that and apply that when I was at Missouri Um, and then came back around when we were here and I talked about it more at Missouri. It was something, you know, that, and I regretted that in some level because um, it was written about and suddenly we were critiqued on it, which I, I, I struggled with that because those critiques were, were from 10,000 feet. And um, so this time, you know, I didn't share those things. I shared them with my staff. Um, I shared them with the team kind of intermittently as they came up. And we had things that we called pillars, and um, but I wanted them. I wanted us to experience them as a team, and you know, peel the layers back, and then recognize, this, hey, this is you know, perseverance being something, um, persistence being something. What, what does that mean? And throwing a definition of something doesn't resonate as much until you experience that and have an opportunity to live that and commit to it and fight for it and then suddenly it becomes real and it's something you can identify with and that's when i think the building really starts so before we go is there anything that you want to give a megaphone to um you mentioned you're not on social media um but is there a nonprofit or something that you want to shine a light on and just use this platform to positively influence something that, that you care about um I, there's, there's a number of things obviously that I care about. Um, and I, I, um, was more vocal than typically I have been in my coaching career, as I mentioned, you know, last summer and, um, through those things, cause I, I felt like it was really important, um, that a lot of us be heard, um, really not just in support of our players, but, um, in support of our profession and in our society um, of some things that were happening. And um, as far as, you know, the, the, to me, you know, I have a nonprofit. I had one at Missouri. We shut it down because um, I got out of coaching and, and, you know, have started that up again. And there's things that we do, but, you know, I'd rather just do them and talk about them. So hopefully, you know, who we are as a program and a team and as a coaching staff, you know, is something that, that we can live 
and that in and of itself can can provide something. So now that this external external validation will matter to you, um, but from afar and from being a fly on the wall, watching the way you would develop people and players in Atlanta, watching your journey over to Russia, watching you in the D-League, watching you at Missouri, uh, watching you uh, all along your journey. Uh, I know you've had other stops as well. Uh, watching the jazz in which you all play with now uh, to use that metaphor and, and the way you share the game and the way you share the ball. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. And I cheer for y'all from afar. Um, and it's, it's a pleasure to watch and I'm excited for you all coming up with the upcoming season uh, to make more music. And I know music's a big part of your life. So um, thanks for coming on the podcast. I do enjoy social media. So I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and there's li- no judgment for me and, in social media. It's, it's and link, a- LinkedIn's the other place where if coach was going to join a social media platform, maybe it would be LinkedIn. I'm at Brian Levinson there. Uh, and if anyone wants to listen to more of these conversations, they're at strongskills.co slash podcast. Quinn, really appreciate getting to know you. Looking forward to you coming to town in DC and uh, hopefully we can chat a little bit and, and, you know, break bread and I can continue to learn from you. So thank you for sharing your perspective and a little bit about your journey and, and how you think about your role and um, excited to watch you all play this year. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And I do listen to podcasts too. I'm not a social media curmudgeon. Awesome. I just choose to keep my distance personally. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You can be good. You know, I think you have an opportunity to be great. And so I had four things that that I had written down um, that I had taken from a number of different things that I had read or resonated with me and, you know, tried to, to live that and apply that when I was at Missouri. Um, and then came back around when we were here and I talked about it more at Missouri. It was something, you know, that, and I regretted that in some level because um, it was written about and suddenly we were critiqued on it, which I, I, I struggle with that because those critiques were, were from 10,000 feet. And um, so this time, you know, I didn't share those things. I shared them with my staff. Um, I shared them with the team kind of intermittently as they came up. And we had things that we called pillars, and um, but I wanted them, I wanted us to experience them as a team, and you know peel the layers back, and then recognize, this, hey, this is you know perseverance being something, um, persistence being something. What, what does that mean? And throwing a definition of something doesn't resonate as much until you experience that and have an opportunity to live that and commit to it and fight for it and then suddenly it becomes real and it's something you can identify with that's when i think the building really starts